You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the people and ideas that are shaping our patterns of consumption for the better. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Hilary Milnes, welcome back. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be back. It's been a while. It has been a while. I guess two and a half years since your last appearance. It's actually been really fun. We've had a lot of uh, repeat guests recently, and it's been really fun to check in. You are now America's editor at Vogue Business. Tell us what that entails. Yes, so I lead our coverage of the Americas, so primarily the U.S., um, but basically everything on on this side of the Atlantic for Vogue Business, which is a Condé Nast title. They're based in the U.K., so I lead our technology coverage, our sustainability coverage that primarily comes out of the U.S. We have our two editors that are based here in the States, and then um, work with the New York, New York freelancers and um, a couple of other contributors that are that are based over here. So Vogue Business's goal is to really be a more global look at the fashion industry. And a big part of that is the U.S. and the Americas. So I work with a lot of different freelancers, contributors, writers to, to flesh out that coverage of what's happening um, in the fashion and luxury businesses um, over here in the U.S. And we are in the middle of fashion month. What? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Technically, what is yes. it? Tell, you know, this is an area that personally I don't pay as much attention to. I'm curious. I know about it. I, I've never attended the big shows, but what's going on this year? What are what are people doing? Yeah, so really there's not the in-person shows um, this season, of course. It's a really interesting time to look back as well because it was this time last year that right. um, Paris Fashion Week basically got um, stopped short because of the pandemic. People started to you know, fly back to their home countries and editors were disbanding as it became clear that the pandemic, I think, was moving from China to Italy. And all of that is a year ago now. So we are back in the autumn winter um, 2021 season. And after a year, I would say that could best be described as, you know, kind of a, a bit of a panic, a, a quick pivot. Um, Paris it comes last in fashion month. And so the majority of the main four fashion weeks got in before Basically, everything shut down, um, including New York, London, and Milan. And so after Paris got cut short, it was very clear that everything was going to have to be rethought because there's a lot of other fashion weeks and shows that happen throughout the year. And I think, if I remember correctly, the British Men's Week in June was one of the first ones to really try something digital. And it just kind of became clear that these you know, fashion organizations were going to need to have some sort of digital hub for their designers, a place where all of the shows could live because it became a very ad hoc, you know, experience we've had seen in last year. Burberry has streamed its shows on Twitch. Platforms, especially for gamers, have become an, an interesting tool for fashion designers and, and hmm. brands to get in front of an audience and just show their collections. And so I think Fashion Month has always been kind of moving towards this, you know, Wild West um, approach to whatever designers, you know, see to be the best fit for their businesses. But now it's it's definitely there. And so this Fashion Month has been primarily digital. Um, I know Shanghai Fashion Week is pretty set on doing an, an in-person event and that got postponed and it will be coming up a little bit later this year. But New York it, what happened last week, that was, you know, designers are just kind of, you get like an email and, you know, tune in to watch and the collections are going up. And so it's just a very different mood around it. Of course, you have a little bit less of that um, 
glam and the street style and everything and the events and parties that that usually come with fashion month but i think at this point in the pandemic everyone's just like yeah let's just let's just get it out there we have to kind of keep moving forward as, as most as we can and you're not really taking the time to mourn those losses at this point anymore it, i did see some interesting stuff where people were trying to still maintain that kind of feeling of exclusivity and the in the runway there was i don't remember which show it was or maybe it was multiple shows where they had cameras set up where they were literally individual cameras on every seat and so if you had a seat then you were actually sitting right there it wasn't just like a feed that everyone was tuning in it was individual cameras so you could be sitting sort of next to someone did you see this yeah yeah um i I now I can't remember who or what show it was that did that, but I think it was very, you know, you have these people, especially in the fashion industry that have been attending show after show and to maintain that level of, okay, here's, you know, the runway side view. And and the goal is to say, okay, how can we do this a bit differently than just a video of the runway? Because that's also not, I mean, brands had been doing that in in some respects for, for years now because it made, made sense even before the pandemic, but now it's very... right. How can we stand out when when everyone is going digital? And I think, you know, let's let's put people back in the seats there. But then at the other end of the spectrum, you know, what what would we do if we had no ties to this traditional format? And so I think we've also seen more like metaverse, like virtual reality attempts as well. Um, but yeah, I think it really runs the gamut. What has worked there? Are is there anything that you think is has been really interesting or that you you could see um, continue to keep going on? Yeah, so I think I think going forward there will be a requirement to have some some digital. I think the more straightforward, simple, you don't need to rethink the wheel to get this done because I think in some ways this has forced the fashion show to return to the you know more tactical aspect that it it has been the the industry purpose that it serves, which is okay. We need buyers to see this. We need press to see this. And so how do you make it as easy as possible for these um, industry players to get involved. So I think kind of doing a twofold approach where you have this digital video element where in that sense, it makes it things almost a little bit easier. It matters less, you know, where people physically are in the world. You can have the playing field kind of leveled for brands and smaller emerging designers who would otherwise be competing just for, you know, the attention and just the physical uh, presence of these really busy you know, press and buyers who also have to attend all of the main shows. And I think it opens access a bit for um, the emerging designers. So I think that that will change a bit in terms of, okay, do if I'm a buyer in India or Shanghai, do I need to be flying all over the place? Is there a digital element that can supplement here? And and how does that then change the brands that I pursue and um, just the the buys that make up each season? And then on the other side, I think the, the Twitch approach and the, okay, how can we make this almost gamified and get customers involved in a different way than, you know, I think with the fashion shows, social media changed everything, of course. Um, and so leaning into that a bit more and saying like, look, this is, you know, in some ways, like if you are loyal enough fan and you want to be here in some way, there there should be something for you. And, and Twitch really brings in that element of let's have a live chat. And it's been interesting. I think even, you know, like people are kind of like, feeling it as they go and kind of wondering to themselves, like, what is, you know, Burberry doing on this app? But Burberry's always been early to embrace new platforms. And so it makes sense. But yeah, I think we'll be see that becoming more the norm as well. These Twitch streams, I haven't watched any of them, but are they still happening somewhere uh, with a runway and multiple brands are kind of in, still 
kind of following through that that typical format it's just being streamed now or are they streaming and giving a lot more creative control to each designer to do whatever they want i would say it's a blend of of both like there are some traditional elements you still have like the models and the in a like a runway look but um I, burberry did like a woods setting it wasn't like oh, wow. y- you know like a traditional warehouse and so okay I like that approach where it doesn't complicate things, but it does give the designer more of a chance to, you know, make a, a, a world around the collection come alive. Uh, I think that has a lot of potential. And um, anytime you can bring a customer into the, you know, the designer world, I think I think that's a win. And you have then content you can repurpose elsewhere, and it it kind of puts more legs behind the the runway shows. Again, very novice question, but is there a feeling that that the runway as a format has less importance than before? Because I do feel like there's there's got to be value to that format in terms of if I'm a buyer or an editor and I'm looking at, you know, it, it's sort of this defined <laughs> a set amount of time, set amount of like space that you have and, and you're working within those constraints. I could see that being a benefit, but with everything going digital, that constraint seems less relevant. Right. It gets it it gets the job done, of course. It it has for many, many years. But I think already, you know, before the pandemic, there was a push to, I think, shift, you know, make, like, what can I do to make the most of, of this time that I have and this money that I'm spending on a runway show? Um, I think it, designers have kind of gone into two camps, Um with, you know, a traditional runway versus a presentation where, you know, you just kind of invite people to come by and the models are kind of hanging around in a room and there's less of that, like, you know, because the runway shows are over very quickly. Um, so that kind of changes up the format a bit, but if you are now, you know, looking at, okay, do I need a runway show or not? And I think that, you know, the big fashion houses themselves are are kind of reconsidering this, for this fashion month, we have all of Caring's brands, um, which include Gucci, Saint Laurent. Like these are, they're sitting out and I, rethinking. Okay, what? How do we want to show up? Um, what do we want to do? And I think in some ways, it's, it kind of says a lot about okay, how, how important are these events in general? And I think it makes a lot of sense that you know designers, um, particularly ones that don't have the clout that a Gucci might, are, still wanting to show up and. Um, figuring out new ways to to get their brands out there and get in front of the right people. But if you do have the ability to kind of step back and say, you know, let's just kind of hit pause and, and rethink what this, you know, how this fits into our strategy and we're going to do that. So I don't think that the runway will ever, will ever be dead or totally obsolete. I think it's, this has been like a, the, probably the biggest shakeup year in a, in a long ongoing kind of existential rethink for for fashion since the runway has become so democratized. Is the is the vibe from the industry that we're just holding our breath until 2022 and and we'll be back to doing that when when everyone's vaccinated and and back or is it do you sense that next year if if things are generally back uh in terms of COVID having really declined, how will it be different? What will stay? The, what will what will we keep from from these changes? Yeah, that's a good question, and I think that there is a, a bit of an idealistic idea where you know that I think would okay. What would be the best case scenario coming out of this year? 
we had just had our executive editor, Christina Binkley, who is a great fashion reporter based out of LA. She wrote a piece for us on um, interviewing a few different designers and how they've kind of been just traversing this fashion month and thinking about it. Okay. How do we realign around this? Because I think first came like the digital shows and the lack of in-person, you know, all of the, the bells and whistles that go with that. And then how does the business model almost catch up? I think that, you know, on one hand you have, will we return to in-person shows? And I think that there will be designers and brands that, that will for sure, because, you know, there is just something that you cannot recreate online and that and there's going to be brands and, and designers that will really embrace when we can have shows and audiences and all of that again. Um, but in terms of what might last from this period and these, you know, what everyone has learned in the past year, I think that the goal is that it will also be a bit of a slowing down and, and sobering up of just the the fashion cycle, which has been very demanding, very grueling. You know, you have a lot of designers who have spoken out just about the pace and how much of a time crunch they're on to put out, you know, enough collections throughout the year to f- fulfill demand. And that's where this kind of business model where I think it's almost under the surface of you have these, you know, marketing events that are the fashion shows and that's where you kind of see everything. But what, you know, how are like the pipes being relayed underneath that? Um, The hope is that, you know, designers and brands will have more power to just do what works for them on the pace that works for them. And it will feel less like that hamster wheel of, you know, you go from men's to resort to fall to spring, you know, up to like 12 collections per year for some, for some fashion houses. Um, and you know, that's just, it's just putting new newness out there for the sake of newness. Um, and that, you know, says a lot about the department store model and the, and the wholesale retailer model too, because they're kind of contributing to these demands themselves, um, as well as just our, our attention span. I think (laughs) people expect newness a lot more now than they used to, but I think that would be the best case scenario to come out of this year and just it can be a fashion industry that works for for more designers on that level with that opening up of access. If you are an emerging designer because you have everyone kind of operating on these digital tools that have been um, normalized over the last year and then also um, just more power over the pace that that, you know, you're contributing to. It feels like we're at a really strange inflection point right now as we as we record this and end of February, where I feel like for the first time, we can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel in a real way. I think there's been a lot of false hope throughout the past 12 months that maybe things would move faster than they have. But we're starting to see like, <laughs> the, hopefully a trajectory for how we get out of this. Um, and but I, but I see a couple different narratives coming up a lot of, on one hand, folks thinking that at the end of this, it's going to be back to the roaring 20s. It's going to be just kind of a boom cycle and everything's going to be going crazy again. You know, But at the same time, I think that we've seen a lot of the flaws in various parts of our infrastructure. And I think in particular in the, in the world of fashion, there's a lot uh, there that has, you know, some, some light has been shown if that's the, I don't even know. Uh, yeah, on, yeah. on the on on areas of weakness, and you know, you point you pointed to the wholesale model and and what the um, role of e-commerce is and all of that. And so, what is your sense about some of the lessons, the big lessons that um, the fashion industry has picked up over the past twelve months? And and is there optimism or pessimism? Do you feel like going forward? 
I think that there is optimism in that. I I think it's Bain that has had to reassess its forecast. They did not think that the luxury industry as a whole was going to rebound until I think it was 2023. And now they're saying like, you you know, I think it's going to return to pre-pandemic levels this year. And so you are seeing like these big legacy brands, um, Louis Vuitton, Dior, like they are performing really well. And I think that comes from a combination. These are, you know, brands that have um, been able to kind of shift their clientele and their customer service to to the new, you know, digital um, and in-person, I guess, the the balance there that you're, you know, all, all brands have had to embrace over the past year. Um, so I think that there is optimism that there will be this kind of spending and, and just shopping a bit more normally again. I am interested to see, I don't, I wouldn't like bet my life on it, but it will be very interesting to see how department stores, particularly in the U.S., um, fare around this because they have had to put, you know, and rightly so, put such an emphasis on digital in the past year. Now, as, you know, we're seeing um, retail sales start to rebound in in the U.S., I think, you know, January was up more than expected. And, you know, signs are pointing that people are going to want to return to stores. um, And, you know, will companies like Saks and Nordstrom be ready for that? And, you know, it's almost like this like actualization of this experiential retail myth that (laughs) retailers have had been saying over the past however many years, you know, oh, people, you know, want a reason to come into stores. It's, you know, they want to come, they want to spend time. It's like, okay, if there was ever a time where that would be the case, it would be, you know, once this is quote unquote all over, um, when that ever actually does happen. So I think there's optimism there. Um, I think the more pessimistic view of it is, you know, the supply chain questions, the sustainability questions. Um, did fashion ever actually reckon with the, um, you know, the supply chain and and the workers and these, you know, people that are on the front lines and how when you have all these orders that get canceled, you know, who does that affect? I don't know that we've really seen any anything come of that. And, you know, it's, it, I think, is the most pessimistic side of fashion in general. And I think that was like kind of the biggest, one of the biggest stories once everything came to a grinding halt last spring was, you know, these manufacturers in Bangladesh, these um, companies and these people that make all of our clothing are are really getting, you know, they're the ones to get screwed over when everything shuts down. And we have our, our sustainability editor, Rachel, um, she covers this really well and, um She's she's not very optimistic when it comes to, you know, what what changes have been made on a really material level on on that side of it. Um, I think the best thing that came out of it was that, you know, there was real customer attention. And I think in in some ways brands are being held to task a little bit more. But, um, you know, it's really it's it's a responsibility that only the the brands and the infrastructure can fix. I don't think that, you know, this idea that customers can take brands to task is quite enough to make any material change, but um, there are good good changes and, and a lot to look forward to. But I think, yeah, I, I don't know if you can say that, you know, the retail industry really reckoned with that side of it. And I, I think, I'm sure this was a topic <laughs> when you came onto the show two and a half years ago, but we've been seeing the decline of malls and the uh, decline in the importance of department stores. There was a an interesting uh, kind of link that you shared to, uh, I guess, an upcoming, as we record this, discussion that um, Vogue is having about how cities are changing. And I feel like this, for me, is just a meta theme that I've been thinking about. And I'm 
I'll be very curious, basically for the rest of my life, like for the next like 50 years, what is what is a city of the future look like, especially in America where there are so many of these shells of, you know, the, 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 the physical footprint of these buildings and malls and things that have been created. And now I think that this, this seems like a real kind of open question still of, I agree with you, you know, there, there's probably going to be that kind of feeling of when, when people are, <laughs> are feeling more comfortable about going outside in more crowded spaces, there's probably going to be kind of a, a desire to, to be back in crowds in, in a very like sort of basic human level. But is that is the underlying like physical like store and retail infrastructure there, everything that we need? Uh, or is it too much? And, and and it feels like everyone kind of agrees that it's too much, but what does it become? Is there an idea of like where you see some of these companies starting to make investments or what they're what they're thinking about at this because like maybe the 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 contrarian viewpoint is this is with with the 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 costs of real estate being so low right now maybe this is a good time to invest and and to your point this is it's not a new conversation around the the death of the shopping mall or even the department store but it's okay now now what does it look like is this accelerated is there a chance that there will be um, some sort of rebound. And I think that, you know, one of the more interesting um, areas of retail to look at, which is just a fascinating story, is the American Dream Mall in New Jersey, which had this, like, I think, what, 17-year buildup and, um, you know, like a roller coaster um, to its opening and then opened in March of 2020, which, yeah, it's (laughs) not, um, I don't know what that, I don't know what you call that, but really bad luck. But I think retail as a, as a destination, and I think this that's like kind of the most like maximal example of this that you could think of because um, it's like a second mall of America. But America is obviously over retailed. There is going to be, I think, a reckoning even when you take it out of the shopping mall and look at areas like Soho in Manhattan that have mm. you know really had sky high real estate, um, but have been really attractive for especially like digitally native brands that are opening their first store because like the, you know, just the foot traffic and the, it's almost like it's like an outdoor, like, right. You know, you're, you're probably still thinking about, okay, who am I next to? Like what street am I on? Like that positioning that any brand would think of when you're in a shopping mall as well. But yeah, it's like all of these are going to, you know, like the, the real estate market is, is changing and also the needs of, of these brands are changing. If you look at, you know, brand like Allbirds, they are really pushing in on stores. Um, and I think because in some ways, what if you look at over the past year, it's like already these DTC brands were kind of tapping out online and you can only imagine that that has, be, you know, gotten to be more so. And, and so I think, you know, to your point, you're right that I think stores will continue to be an opportunity and then the like the but the like suburban like classic American mall I I think that you're going to keep seeing this like tiering system where you have these class A malls that are really attractive and can um you know draw the right type of foot traffic and it's interesting to look at those though because the, these are luxury brands that are really kind of holding them down and you can um sell less, but, you know, you're going to be doing well because one, these are people that are spending money. Um, and you know, if you do one shopping trip per year versus 10, it's, it is just a higher cart size. So I think that'll be really interesting to see. And it's also just, it's very eye opening because, you know, what is that? It's like the mall was kind of this like pinnacle of like, 
you know, suburban middle class. And now it's, it's like more of a luxury destination. Um, I think that is where we'll see retail going. It's these, you know, luxury experiences. And then those like class B, class C malls will really struggle to stay open. And then you have like the retail real estate companies kind of paying that price. Um, I think what Westfield just left the U.S. entirely last week. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, I mean, what you're bringing up makes me think of, I don't know what the numbers are for the past couple of years, but, you know, it was always known that Tiffany's, for example, was one of the the, the mall uh, companies that had the best, I mean, obviously they have beyond malls, but their stores had had the highest like per dollar per square foot kind of uh, numbers that you had in the, in the entire industry. And if you have that type of luxury product that maybe needs more education, needs uh, more consideration, that physical retail environment makes more sense. I'm not sure what has happened with Tiffany's or some of those brands like during this time, have they been able to shift partially on online? Will they keep all of their stores open? It does seem like that type of kind of higher end store is probably decently positioned to to rebound, whereas some of the lower cost stores that maybe don't have as much differentiation and have a lot of inventory to carry would really struggle compared to e-commerce. Yeah, and I think, you know, for these luxury brands that have really relied on on in-store sales, there is, you know, what you're seeing is that they've for the most part, have been selling online. They have digital presences. They've kind of said, okay, we do need to um, invest in this. And there is a customer here. And I think that there's a really big opportunity in online customer service and clientele and personal styling. And that's been, you know, nascent for a while and obviously even more important now. I think it will be this, you know, you'll you'll have these really close one-on-one relationships where you're like chatting with, you know, your like, if you are that customer, you're you're talking to the, you know your local stylist on WhatsApp, and they will let you know when new things come in. And so, I think there's definitely ways to kind of bridge that gap that you would have in a typical you know online to in store setting. You know, and I but I just I wonder like that destination flagship. I I do wonder what the what the future for that is. Obviously, that's something that Tiffany is very well known for. Um, which, you know, I think Tiffany has a good runway ahead of it. Now it's an, an LVMH brand. Um, you know, that's, I think, one big lesson is that it's hard to be an independent luxury brand um, right now, uh, pandemic or not. It's it's uh, it just a very consolidating market. And LVMH and Caring are, you know, just well more positioned to win and have the resources to do so than any one brand on its own. And even the, you know, the mini I guess you could say conglomerates um, here in the U.S. like Capri and Tapestry, but you know I think it's um, you know just in terms of you know do we return though to those like really big flagship formats and is that like the right investment? I, I do think that brands will start to reconsider that because it is just just that like resource suck that I, I think that have become like brands have had to kind of rein it in a little bit. Have you been following at all what's um, kind of Stitch Fix's growth over the past few months? Um, so the past few months, it's not not as much. I think I'm trying to think of how I how I. It seems like they've been they've been kind of like uh, growing quite a lot just in the in the past few months. Um, I, I mean, maybe it's kind of there's a little bit of a delay in terms of how they're reporting, you know, as a public company works. Mm-hmm. But it's been interesting to think of 
kind of in the different tiers. I think Stitch Fix is a pretty unique company in the sense of their business model compared to the rest of the industry is pretty unique being kind of this like subscription format. And I was curious if that was something that you had studied at all and where you think that might go um, going forward. Yeah, so I think I and I remember earlier on in the pandemic, I think Stitch Fix took a bit of a hit and Yeah, they were struggling quite a bit early on. Yeah, and I'm sure it had to do with people kind of reconsidering like what I what they need in terms of expenses and um, you know, just going out clothes, like going outside. <laughs> you know, obviously I think right. you look at the the rental um startups as well, that's that's been a really big hit. But Stitch yeah, and Stitch Fix did kind of have like a return to growth. And I think that had to do with you had this like regain of people turning to online shopping who might not have considered before it almost like it unlocked like this customer who might have been on the fence, but then went to Stitch Fix more out of a necessity. And I think ultimately like Stitch Fix is I think greatest asset is is the data that it can share with brands because then the more I guess it's almost like they can give this like hope to brands where you have this very specific customer and this value proposition and just a different way of working than a traditional department store. And, you know, if you're a department store brand, you are really looking for other options because, you know, I think just looking at this today, like Macy's lost like almost $4 billion last year. Like it was not, it was probably not a good time to be a brand that's reliant on, on wholesale outlets and partners like Macy's where, you have these new model partnerships like a Stitch Fix where, you know, their value proposition is, okay, we don't do discounting. We, you know, you don't have to worry about so much of that, like, okay, who, again, like, like who am I next to? Like, how do I appear next to these brands? It's it's very like the product kind of stands on its own and you have just direct feedback that, that closes the loop and, and they can spot, okay, this one jacket keeps coming back and it might have to do with the, the, the fit and the sizing and that something's not working there. And just... And having that customer information right now, I think is probably, and it was, you know, always an asset, but even more so now when, when, you know, kind of push comes to shove, I think that's Stitch Fix's greatest calling card. And you have, and if, and if they have the right brands and the right assortment, then that's, you know, how they're going to be able to keep people. But yeah, I think they, they like just benefited from this. Okay. I, I will finally try an online model because I'm not leaving my house um, to go shopping anymore. Yeah, I guess it, it does seem to me, like there's still a lack online of, you know, this multi-brand retail experience that feels really native to the online world. And Stitch Fix is maybe the cl- closest thing that 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 I can think of to that. Because of course you have, you know, all of the Nordstroms and all of those types of companies have done that and built out really strong e-commerce presences. But it always feels like the the default is still the the physical retail. And Stitch Fix does seem like they've like figured something out there in terms of how do you make this appealing for the brand as well. Mm-hmm. But then I think about this just in the context of what else from a digitally native standpoint does the ecosystem look like over the next 24 months? And if I, you brought this up, a lot of the, the digital native brands were kind of starting to hit a little bit of a wall in terms of their growth at the beginning of last year before COVID hit. And I think a lot of them have had to restructure or figure things out um, to kind of stay alive during this period of time. Some of the ones who were already in an area where they could kind of pivot or continue to sell their kind of loungewear type of products have done really well, but other ones, not, not as much. And so I wonder, as we come out of this, 
you know, what, where, where are we at when it comes to these companies that are, that started online and, and were perhaps planning to make a big push into retail, but that's been postponed. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Like this, okay, do we, I'm sure they had to decide, do we continue with our store openings? Um, you know, cause that I think was a really big lever for growth for some of these brands that, that were moving into opening stores. I think a big, like, Avenue and I think a sign of success and just expansion and, and brand health will be how they are pushing into other markets. Of course, if you you know are in a brand operating in Asia right now, that's a big advantage because they have returned to growth. Like things have, um, you know, pretty much all brands are if they do sell in Asia, that's that's their biggest growth market right now. And so, you know, I think Allbirds, Rothy's, um, a few brands have started operations in Asia. So I think continuing to become okay, if they can become more of a global brand, that will be a really big asset and I think a sign of of growth. And I think less so, I, th- I think that wholesale partners and just retail partners will play a role as well. I think one interesting thing that came out um, in the last month or so, uh, Nordstrom had an investor day and they they talked about the fact that they are, I, like it was a huge piece of the presentation, just how they want to be a better partner to brands. And at least in that, in that relationship, you can see like the retailers like a Nordstrom need these brands because they need to bring in new customers. They need to compete against other retailers. Um, and a lot of that is an inventory play. And if you are, you know, a, a DTC brand, you are also looking for new ways to growth and, you know, maybe Nordstrom is like a new marketing channel and sales channel. So Nordstrom is kind of changing up its its playbook to account for new types of brand partnerships and are going to be leaning in more towards the dropship model. So, you know, that that could appeal to a brand that, you know, may not want to commit to this like a traditional retail buy, but is able to fulfill on, okay, if I, I can handle drop shipping or the concession model. And I think it's just that idea of retailers being in a position where they're willing to offer flexibility and, you know, outsource really important things like shipping and cust- like that piece of the um, customer journey to these outside brand partners, because that's really their, what they can compete on now is, is just inventory and selection. And okay, if you are the one retailer that has this brand in stock, that's going to be a big deal. And so it's interesting. It's almost, it's been kind of a, like a, like a, you're like holding like again like just like this idea like brands like kind of holding their breath and okay can we make it through this year and then and then we'll see what happens and so yeah i think for for brands that have been able to pivot like your to your point around okay do we do loungewear like how do we um kind of change our assortment to fit current customer needs that you know i think that says a lot too about just the agility that you need to have right now as a brand and i think for um direct to consumer brands in a way they were in a okay spot because they are not in a million different wholesale doors. You, ha- If you have your operations, you know, a little bit closer to the chest there, uh, it was a bit of an easier year. There's another interesting transition happening, which is that Gen Z is, is coming into buying age. We have, I think the oldest Gen Z is around like 24 years old now. And this year was also really big for TikTok. <laughs> like I know, mm-hmm. and, and like <laughs> other, like, also, Gen Z kind of going into we've we've talked about this on the show with Alden Wicker recently into uh, marketplaces like Depop and ThreadUp and um, Poshmark and so on. And I'm curious, yeah. do you sense that these fashion brands have an eye on that? What are they thinking about? Because that's just going to be happening independently as well. But I think that that generation is is looking at at their purchasing behavior in a completely different way. 
Definitely. And I think this uh, like idea of like influencer um, shopping and just, you know, buying something because of online recommendations and social media is going to, I think, you know, come to a peak and just explode even more because you've seen it happen so organically on TikTok over the past year that in a way that I think Instagram, you know, likes to think it did, but it's, it's truly like, can you speak to that a little more? Just explain like what's going on there for people who are not (laughs) following. Sure. Like, so on TikTok, I mean, it's, it's obviously very tailored to everyone's, um, you know, what your personalized interests are. The algorithm is, is really just the engine that makes it so appealing and addicting. And a big trend on, on TikTok is just to show off interior design, to show off morning routines. And so, and even, you know, there's a whole TikTok trend to say like, things I bought on Amazon that like now I can't live without. And so it's basically just, you know, product pushing and and to my, and I haven't done my due diligence of reporting here, but I think for the most part, these are not paid. Um, the brands themselves are, are basically playing catch up. And I think, um, the skincare brand Sarah V is a really interesting case study last year because this is a drugstore, um, you know, skincare brand that's been around forever and they've just seen they've sales explode last year. I think sales were, ugh, I don't know if you want to quote me directly on this, but I think it was like sales were up 80% or something in a quarter because one of their cleansers went viral on TikTok. And there's this like suite of products that have become like, if you are a, a skincare, um, you know, fan or just someone interested on, on social media and you, you just know these core products that have become really popular on TikTok, everyone has them. And a lot of times they are really affordable products. You're things you can get at Walgreens. It's the ordinary, which I think just today was bought by Estee Lauder for a billion dollars. So you have these TikTok brands that it's not like Instagram where you would, an Instagram brand was very much one that kind of came up and existed only on Instagram and got popular through the engine that way. It's like TikTok could just be anything. And um, it kind of becomes this uh, really core, like, um, cult product that everyone knows about. And it's, yeah, it runs the gamut of price ranges. And so really, really seen it happen in, in beauty. And then, um, you know, I think for TikTok fashion trends, that's kind of a world that like, I, if I go on TikTok, I really, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't, the algorithm doesn't cater this to me, but our trends editor, um, Lisa McGuire did a great piece earlier in the year on the new, like fashion trend pipeline, which, you know, you have, things like cottage core where people kind of create these little worlds on TikTok and the whole aesthetic is is like the the trend and so you have people wearing these like flowy like gingham dresses and um it kind of all fits into this like lifestyle like fantasy and then you see the trends populate on Depop and people are either creating these clothes or selling them and um you know you can follow the trends and the hashtags from TikTok to Depop and then you have brands that, you know, fit into these trends, just like they didn't really do it on purpose. They just happen to make something that fits into a new TikTok trend and they're seeing sales really explode because of these TikTok trends. And so I think it's right now we're still in that place of brands intentionally like getting popular and like growing sales on TikTok. I don't can't think of any examples of that happening yet. It's all very brands are like, oh, wait, what what is happening? <laughs> like, and how do we capitalize on this? It's it's uh, it's been really interesting to watch. It seems like TikTok and and generally something that's happening online is creating even more virality in the sense that things are so much spikier. Like 
I think that this has always been the trend of of the internet is to create these kind of viral kind of behaviors. But I, it seems like, and we've seen this in a bunch of unrelated ways, whether it's like, you know, a few weeks ago was GME on the stock market, or, you know, it could be a fashion trend, or it could be something as dramatic as what happened at the Capitol. Like these ideas kind of can spread, but in a way that is feels like it's, 10 or 100 times spikier than it was before and then fall fall you know the next day or a week later back to zero yeah and so if you are there have been companies that for you know decades have have kind of thought about things in that way and or you know done drops and those types of things where it's kind of building up to either creating some sort of trying to manufacture virality or trying to be there at the right time at the right place and being nimble, like you said, to be able to react to something viral and how do you quickly sort of capitalize on that. Yeah. But I don't know if that's, that feels like it's here to stay. We don't know <laughs> what the like roll of the dice is going to give us any given week, but there's something that's going to go supernova, you know, at least once a week. And the companies that can predict that or can be part of that seem like they could be positioned at the same time. It seems very random. It really is. And I think that's what makes it hard for brands to like, okay, what's your TikTok strategy? And now, you know, and, and there's some ads that are starting to pop up like actual official brand accounts, but to really like strike at that essence of virality and um, that craze that can build around specific products or trends is really hard to predict. And to your point, it's moving really fast. And I think that's why you have platforms that are really peer led like Depop and Poshmark um, that are doing really well right now because, you know, it moves as fast as the users on the app want them to. And things can change really, really quickly. And, you know, and, and outside of just, you know, fashion or beauty trends in general, like anything that was on TikTok like a week or so ago is, is it's like long gone now. And so I can't imagine it must be, you know, I think right now we're st when that stage of um, brands, you know, okay, what is our, what is our TikTok strategy and, and how do we really navigate this this platform. And I, I think it speaks to a broader trend in, in how brands are functioning on social media. I think, you know, you had this, um, you know, for, okay, we need to have like a really well curated Instagram presence. And mm -hmm. um, now it's it's much more ephemeral. It's much more, um, it's, it's this idea that brands, if they don't fit like what everyone on the app is really, is really talking about and, and, you know, obsessed with like it's just there's it's going to feel like it's sticking out which I think is hard for brands to to deal with and so you have you know I think last year one of the one of like the interesting examples was um Charlie D'Amelio at the Dior show and so they had you know her doing one of the dances that she does like at like front row or behind or backstage at this fashion show and so I think it will also shift towards since um you know that the trends and like the the very official brand with a capital B presence is you know, not very well received or just doesn't really work on these platforms as much, it's going to become more and more creator led. And I've even like started saying like creator more <laughs> than influencer because it just feels, it feels like just more fitting for for a lot of these new apps um, where you, I think that will become the currency for for brands and, and for the platforms themselves where again, it's just so like, they're never going to be able to recreate it. And so even more so than we've seen on Instagram, it's going to come down to these these partnerships, um, which I imagine is kind of unnerving for a lot of brands, especially considering these um, creators are so young, but it's a lot of it's a lot to outsource. Um, but I think that that's going to 
really define like the next, um, you know, stage of, of brand involvement on these apps. It's it's going to have to rely on the people who re- are really native to them and, and understand them. Yeah, it's interesting that word creator has really taken over, I feel like, <laughs> right. in terms of describing, I guess maybe it's trying to describe a more aspirational uh, version of what we had before where distribution can be paired with actually kind of a revenue model or a creator is such a loose term, but I think influencer just sort of pinned people into this area where the the only thing that they had was distribution, whereas creator kind of implies there's some sort of like product as well. Right. And I think it also says like influencer now feels more like a, like a career choice. Like you have, like you've Hmm. made this, your, um, your persona and you have this entire, like, you know, business model behind it as well. But I I think for, for creators, it kind of says, okay, and basically anyone can be, an influencer if they kind of strike at the right time. I like, I feel like with, like, cause with TikTok, it, you know, it's, you don't have to be followed even like you don't like, you don't have to make a choice to follow any specific user. They just might appear in your feed. And all of a sudden, you know, you're looking through their, um, you know, product recommendations and you might even then get off the app and remember like what you want to go buy at CVS, but you don't even remember the name of the account that you saw it on because it's just like one in a, in a never ending feed of content. But you know, someone's making them that it's like, the, that's who's behind it. It's this creator. But like, I feel like for an influencer, you're just, it's more of like this personal brand. And I don't know, it's, I think at a, also at a certain point, like it kind of had a negative connotation and creator is a bit more neutral. And I think it also is just fluid across platforms or, you know, you're a YouTube creator, you're a TikTok creator. I think it's almost this like flattening out of like the industry where it's less like, okay, to be an influencer, there's, there's so much, you know, connotation that comes with that. You're doing brand partnerships. You are, you know, you just have this entire like lifestyle persona and like it creators just anyone who's like posting to the app and every once in a while it might, something might stick. Yeah. And, and it's a theme that we've come back to many times on the show about the idea of these audience first brands. Are you able to convert, if you've somehow amassed a, a, a big audience on one of these social networks, are you able to convert that into something that people can buy to, to somehow monetize your presence? And it seems like more and more, and I know that um, you work with Webb Smith, who's been on the on the show on a few things here and there with his publication 2PM. And he's he kind of came out of that world and has been very actively involved in various companies who, that have, um, like Cotton Bureau was one that we talked about back in the day um, when he was on the episode of two or three years ago that was trying to help people sell t-shirts more easily. But now, I, I don't know if you saw this thing, Mr. Beast Burgers. Did you did you see this? There, yeah. <laughs> this is like a fascinating concept where this, you know, YouTube creator was able to kind of launch a burger concept, which he doesn't have to have any sort of physical presence but i think he partnered with maybe cloud kitchens or something like that to basically create a brand of burgers and start delivering them to people all over uh america just by sort of coming up with a concept of a menu and then having this kind of distributed layer of different restaurants who are able to produce that for him Mm -hmm. and that kind of relationship between being able to build an audience and kind of a distribution mechanism through like your followers 
and then yeah. coming up with a product separately that is interesting to those people is just that relationship. It doesn't feel like there's there's ever been a time like that before. I, I don't think that there has. And it's such like, I, I think, new territory for a lot of the like the brands who can be involved. Yeah, I was just looking at Mr. Beeson and Webb, um, who's obviously, you know, he's like one of the smartest people that I know and he knows these areas so well. And I think and he's the one who kind of like clued me in on this Mr. Beast phenomenon and phenomenon. And he has um two two younger girls to like have freaked out over it. And that, you know, he just tweeted uh, like a few days ago that he, um, Mr. Beast Burger sold like a million sandwiches or something like that. And it's one of those things where you know, it's the the quicker you can kind of wrap your head around just how, like, if this is like it sounds so foreign. I think to to right. people above a certain age who don't understand the audience, um, you just realize like how big of like a, a business opportunity there is there. And I and I do think that it will be interesting to see how these creators that have these huge followings, um, like work that into products and um, like businesses on the on the on the um like the brand side, because I think, I feel like those have a bit lot like shorter of a, of a shelf life. I, I, I'm more interested in how brands, um, you know, work with these partners to create these, you know, interesting moments just because I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just not, not like fully come around to it, but it feels like that it's much more of a fleeting, um, opportunity, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> well, it does seem strange if you're one of these companies like the ones that we were talking about earlier in the show that have been around for some of them a hundred years or more kind of just (laughs) none of them have anywhere near that kind of level of attention on any given day that that some of these people who you know are under 20 years old have been able to captive capture and so there's this really strange asymmetry i think for a company that has been you know in whatever way you want to measure it been like providing a product that some people really like for a hundred years. <laughs> and then suddenly you have someone who overnight has like more, more following more attention than they do. How do those two interact with each other? And they, I, I feel like they both have something to bring the other party, but we haven't figured out how to connect those two things super well. Yeah. And I think for like years now, you know, I think luxuries like and, and fashion starting to embrace like streetwear. I think that has almost been like a prelude to this because I think that luxury has kind of had to go outside of its comfort zones a lot over the past 10 or so years um, just to just to meet customers where they are now. And I, I think that there will always be this like aspirational level for these more traditional um, fashion brands. I think Gucci is a really interesting one because for a long time they, um, you know, were, were kind of doing everything right. And uh, everyone, you know, no matter what else you were wearing, like I'll, you know, you're a younger, um, a teen or younger consumer, you wanted the Gucci t-shirt, the Gucci belt. I don't know. I feel like Gucci might be starting to run out of steam there. Um, so we'll see like what takes its place. But I think that there's always a way for these um, traditional luxury brands, just because of their names, to to get involved and um, like reach these customers and like kind of instill this like, okay, this is uh, like a like a real deal luxury brand, and you know, of course, I'm not going to pass this up. Um, it's just a matter of I think one recognizing the opportunity on its own and not like scoffing at it. And I think a lot of luxury brands have kind of gotten over that and come around. Um, and this, you know, the the past like experiences with streetwear brands or um, social media has been kind of like the lead up to that. But, um, you know, I think the more open-minded you can be as a luxury brand and just kind of make the right choices that will kind of really signify 
success of with this generation. Because I think a lot of it will come down to partnerships, but but how they do them and, and who they do them with. Yeah, we talked a little bit about this um, with Casper Capetti, who's the founder of On Running. Um, and this is something that in the sports business has been around for a long time, that kind of sponsoring athletes, these kind of young, promising athletes can be a really important way that these brands like Nike kind of built its brand off of that. But now what is Charlie D'Amelio <laughs> relative to like Michael Jordan? Like it, mm-hmm. in a way we're in a world where anyone can sort of like build that attention so fast. And in, in some cases, very deservedly. So they're bringing something that people happen to really want at that particular moment in time. And so there might be something like that with, with, partnerships with sponsorships with thinking of brands as a platform for these kind of creators and influencers and people who are able to kind of like for whatever period of time create a little bit of a gravity well around what they're doing and and somehow connect those two things in a way that feels genuine that's the other part that's that I think is hard is how do you how does it not feel like just shilling you know some product if you're one of these creators. Right. Yeah, I think that's where a lot of this can can go wrong. Um, and, you know, I think as quickly as that you you can sort of earn that attention, you can kind of lose it to the next person when, when people's, you know, when whims and trends change and all of that. And so it does feel very, it feels like all of this is in a, like on the grand scheme here to stay. And I don't think any brand should overlook it or think that they're above it because I think that that would be, misguided but at at the same time on like the case by case basis it does also feel very fleeting in that sense and so i don't know i think it's you know in any sort of brand partnership there is that risk of okay people will realize like oh, now they're paid especially if you're doing like really authentic and organic product reviews um i was going to try to not say the word authentic but it came out but <laughs> it's you know you're just doing that like unpaid nature of this community you built with your friends, if you're recommending products to them and all of a sudden you have a brand that's paying you to recommend their products, you know, that's really dicey territory. And I think that's something that, you know, Instagram influencers have like really learned already how to deal with and and the TikTok creators will be the next to do so. But um, yeah, I think that it's just, it just comes down to that it factor of, you know, when, when a partnership works, it'll really, really work and it's worth you know, trying and thinking outside of the box and and doing things that might have been outside of the brand's comfort zones. And I think on the on the creator side, it's I, I think there is a little bit of a an easier I don't know. It's if you if you've built up an, a big enough fan base, I, I think you'll you'll have a lot of runway to kind of experiment with those things and and uh, work with your audience to to make sure it does you know kind of come from a place where it doesn't feel like you've just sold out. But I don't know. It, it does feel like you know, TikTok can it build it all and it can also take it away. Do you think of yourself as a creator? Oh, absolutely not. I could not make, <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't make a TikTok. Like I, I, I go on the app all the time and I've never, I've never posted anything. It's very, it's very weird, um, you know, feeling of dissonance. Um, but 
yeah, I was just starting to feel good about my my Instagram following, and then uh, TikTok, <laughs> TikTok came along, and no one, no one, I don't think anyone, I don't know if anyone cares anymore. But um, yeah, more Web, of a Web is a little bit of a creator, right? Web Smith. We'll have to find his um his secret TikTok. I don't know. <laughs> well, I don't think creator has to be necessarily TikTok. I think you know in the, in the publishing world, we've talked about this a bunch too, with kind of what's going on with with Substack and a lot of uh, various journalists and people kind of going independent, I kind of feel like it's all part of the same movement. I think you're right. I think that is a really good point on um, Substack where you have this like scattering of um, editorial talent. Like if you have built up a name for yourself um, at a big publication, you know, who's to say that you can't take that audience and kind of foster it um, on your own elsewhere. I don't know. I, I would be, I'd be too nervous myself to try it, but I, I feel like that's a big, it's a big wait and see. Um, I don't know. We'll have to see what happens with Substack, but I think, yeah, if you, if you look at it that way, what was the original, uh, <laughs> one of the original Substack creators or in that type of influencer. Well, and now with the, the app of the day being clubhouse where people are, it, it seems like, the idea of the portability of your audience is is more fungible, I guess, maybe. Maybe not. I'm not sure if, if people on TikTok are able to kind of bring their audience to wherever they want to take it. But it does seem like the reverse has been true in the sense that I think some of the biggest people on TikTok were previously on Vine or on YouTube and kind of were able to to bring their people over there. And what, you know, where do they where do they bring them next? Um, that that feels like that that kind of like liquidity of your audience is, is more there than it ever has been before. Yeah. And I think it, it, I think now it, it just genuinely comes down to, you know, are you, you know, creating and making content that people want to see? And I, and I think if you are, then they'll seek you out in, in, in whatever environment. Um, and, but, but yeah, I think there is going to really be that, that almost like a standard that, that people have for their audiences and, or, for people have, um, you know, for the people that they follow, because you can always just move on to the next. There's no shortage of of content or creators and all of that, and so I think it's it puts that onus much more on the on the quality, especially when you yeah get into Substack and things that you'd have to actually pay for. Well, recently you've been experimenting with LinkedIn and their newsletter product, um, and LinkedIn, <laughs> LinkedIn has stories. LinkedIn, you can do your <laughs> you could be a creator on LinkedIn. I think now. That's true. Actually, I think that's what I'll start saying when people ask me. I'm a LinkedIn creator. <laughs> I'm a LinkedIn creator. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, we do the a weekly Vogue Business newsletter on LinkedIn. But they were testing this product last year. They wanted it to come from people rather than um, like any sort of publication or brand. Which actually, now that I think of it, might be part of the, the creator mindset. But um, yeah, so it comes from from my personal LinkedIn, and every week we kind of publish like the must read stories from the week with a little bit more context and just plugs for Vogue business events and things like that. And um, so, yeah, the thinking is, you know, how can we kind of open this audience? And LinkedIn's, I think, it's a good. It kind of gets laughed at a bit. I don't know if it's done anything on the brand for brands like there's any sort of presence there, but for publications and especially you know trades like like we are it's it's a good place it shouldn't be overlooked <laughs> well i will say that um with lumi we've been on all of the platforms we're not on tiktok but we've been on <laughs> twitter and instagram and podcasts and youtube for for a long for a long time now and linkedin is the one that's growing the fastest for us linkedin uh, for whatever reason they i don't know they figured something out i think that 
a lot of, yeah, I, I, I do agree with you that um, there, was, there was a really good, I'll have to find a really good blog post about how um, someone was criticizing kind of like the LinkedIn e- ecosystem and, and what it feels like um, just doesn't, going back to that word, like genuine or authentic, there's a lot of weird stuff going on there or like why does LinkedIn need to have stories is a probably a f- very fair question. But I don't know. I, I feel like there's something there and I think it might be a little overlooked. And I think we discovered that you're a LinkedIn creator. <laughs> I'll take it. I, I, I like that label. Is the newsletters, is that working? Uh, like, is there a benefit there as opposed to kind of building up your own newsletter on, you know, MailChimp or Klaviyo or one of those other tools? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it has really like top of the funnel reach. I, I you know, ultimately as a subscription and membership based, you know, publisher, we are wanting to get people to come in and become a Vogue business member. And, you know, I don't know, I, would, I wouldn't be able to say whether or not that's, you know, we've seen that drive a, a ton of traction there, but I think it's awareness building, you know, Vogue business is is a little bit new and it's, yeah, two years as of January. So I think it helps there. I think we just want to primarily just familiarize people with what we do and the name and it kind of, even if you aren't, you know, if you hit a paywall, once you click through, you're, you get a little bit of a taste of, of our content and our coverage. Anything coming up in the next uh, month that people should be aware of that that you have uh, that you're excited about? Yeah, absolutely. So we're actually starting a new newsletter um, that will be weekly, and it's the Vogue Business China Edit. So it is our third um, specialty newsletter in addition to our tech edit and our sustainability edit. So it will be um, our global markets editor in the UK, working with our editor um, on the ground in Shanghai, working for Vogue Business in China. We have a satellite office there. And so I think, you know, if you are in luxury or fashion, like I was saying before, like China is just this extremely major growth market. And so it'll be everything, you know, you need to know about retail in China um, on a weekly basis. So that is coming up and it's, I'm really excited for the launch. Anything else? You want to plug? Should we send people to your TikTok or to your Instagram? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My empty TikTok account. Um, we actually have the the Vogue Business um, podcast is returning later in March. We awesome. did our first yeah first season. Um, it's just called the Future of Fashion podcast. We did the first season in the fall, and um, yeah, we'll be bringing that back for the spring. So I'll be hosting that one too. So very excited. Awesome. Well, it's always great to have you on, Hillary. Um, see you next time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you got something useful out of it, I would love to hear what that was. Consider writing a short review, could be just a sentence long, by going to iTunes and searching for Well Made. I want to hear it all. I want to hear good, bad. I want to hear your constructive criticisms. I am just trying to make this show as useful as possible for you. So tell us what you think. That is the very best way that you can support the show. Thanks, and see you next time.